Akka is a toolkit for building concurrent, distributed, message-driven applications on the JVM. Akka provides an implementation of the actor model of concurrency, which simplifies concurrency by adding a lighter weight abstraction than threads and thread pools. Conrad Miloski joins the show today to discuss Akka and Reactive Streams. Reactive Streams is an initiative to provide a standard for asynchronous stream processing. This episode goes deep into modern concurrent programming, and it's a great companion to some of the shows that we have done about reactive programming and functional programming. Before we get to this episode, a few quick announcements. If you're interested in advertising on Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. There are more than 14,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis, so it's a great place to get your product out into the ears of developers or to advertise available jobs that you might have at your company. Also, if you're an engineer that's looking for an open source project to work on, check out Software Daily at softwaredaily.com. This is an open source news and information site about software. It's being led by Jeff Tribble, a member of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can also check out softwareengineeringdaily.com, which is the website for this podcast. You can find links to the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email. You can find a link to sign up for our newsletter, Software Weekly. And with that, let's get to today's episode. Conrad Miloski is an engineer at Lightbend. Conrad, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello, Jeff. Let's start by talking about Akka. Eventually, we will get into concurrency and reactive programming and all the other things that go along with it. But let's just start with what is Akka? Okay. So for those of you who have not heard about Akka, the basically one sentence summary is uh, kind of like Erlang, but on the JVM. That's like the shortest description one can give. But it's a bit more than that. So yes, it's a concurrency toolkit. And not only concurrency, but also clustering and distribution. So it's all built around the actor model. So actors are pretty much at the core of everything we do. And actors are basically a concurrency and distribution model that allows you to very easily to build concurrent and distributed systems because instead of thinking about threads, you just think about actors and the only way actors communicate is through messaging. And turns out distributing message passing is, well, I wouldn't say trivial, but very native to the web. So it leans itself very well to distributed systems. And at the same time, it turns out that well, the same concepts apply to just concurrent programming because basically message passing between two queues is conceptually very similar to passing messages between two nodes, right? It's just a difference of, well, here we have a queue inside the same process and there we have queues, well, we have uh, internet, so it goes on the wire, but the concept is very similar. So instead of, maybe last sentence here, so instead of turning it, like some people have in the past, to make method calls go over the network, and then it starts going a bit fuzzy, we go the other way around. So we take what is native to the network, so message passing, and use that locally as well. Why is the abstraction of an actor useful? Why don't we just use threads to manage our concurrency? What's wrong with that? Yeah, so 
basically, uh, threads are pretty heavy. So that's one of the biggest uh, kind of differences with actors. So thread, at least on the JVM, uh, they're especially heavy because the stack depth is kind of pre-allocated for each thread. So thread weights more or less a megabyte sometimes. And an actor weights, at least in the ACA implementation, more or less exactly 400 bytes. And that's all you have um, to allocate to have an actor running, and you get kind of the same behaviors. You get all the concurrency and, and parallelism you want, but you don't have a mag, you know, wasting your space there. Are there some aspects of threads that we don't need that that are giving us mm-hmm. that extra uh, heavy weight around a thread? Yeah. So, um, so actors are still running on threads, of course, but um, when you go really, really concurrent and parallel programming, uh, you kind of realize that it's not like everyone is running all the time, right? And that's kind of what a thread is there for. It's there and it's running. And if it's not really doing anything useful, maybe it's sleeping, so wasting time, or maybe it's spinning, so again, wasting time. So what we do with actors is instead of wasting time doing nothing, uh, we just don't schedule the actor. And this time, which would have been wasted by the thread doing nothing, we allocate to another actor. So we're able to utilize, um, well, uh, the same hardware more efficiently than we would be able to do with threads. And maybe the biggest mind shift and difference between thread-based programming and actor programming is the share-nothing concept. So in thread world, usually at some point need to pass some information from one thread to the other. And, well, at least in the good old days, you would have a log when the threads meet and communicate, or you would have queues, so you basically start re-implementing Akka, and that's a big piece of work. So what we do in Akka instead is, instead of having these points where you meet and exchange this information or logs, uh, we just pass messages, and turns out that is really, really efficient, because basically in the entire Akka codebase, uh, which is, well, a few hundred thousand lines. By now, we have maybe two logs, and that's only in uh, startup of the entire system. And of course, locking slows everything down, and it causes all kinds of problems. So, so just to really drive the definition of actors versus threads home a little more, because we've done some shows about this, mm-hmm. and I think people remain a little bit confused about it, uh, speaking for myself. Uh, so is in the actor model, is there, for example, a single thread and multiple actors are sharing the usage of that thread? Yeah, so that's the simplest case. In practice, you have a um, thread pool, so you have N threads, and N would be something around maybe 30, maybe 40, so a relatively small number. A bit more than you have cores on your system, but not much more. On the other hand, you have maybe a million actors. And that still runs perfectly fine. So yeah, it basically is is a multiplexing mechanism. Got it. Okay, it makes sense to me. Are there other problems around JVM concurrency that Akka solves? Mm, I think most of the trouble around, I call it the good old way, 
which is also <laughs> also the Java way with uh, threads and mutexes and these kinds of things. They really don't scale that well. So yeah, maybe you can survive a hundred threads, but there's just no way you're gonna have a million threads running on your system, right? So the biggest thing we address is just the scalability, but also, well, at least from my perspective, the ease of programming using actors. Because with threads, you kind of always have to think, with each method call, you have to think, oh, wow, will this method call be safe if accessed concurrently? Yes, no, maybe. And it gets really hard. So with actors, we have this, um, we call it an illusion of single-threadedness. So the guarantee an actor gives you is that if you receive a message, so you get this message and you do stuff with it, and then you receive another message. And of course, you can have some state inside the actor, right? So you have like a counter field and on each message, maybe you increment it. If you would were to do it with just threading and multiple threads accessing the counter, well, you suddenly have to use maybe volatiles or maybe some locks and think about the shared state there. But with actors, we kind of take care of the memory visibility for you and you have this illusion that inside the actor it's as simple as programming in a single thread so you can access this uh, counter you just increment it you're done and then the next message arrives and even though you could be already on a different thread because like i said we're um, multiplexing so you very often end up having a few messages handled on one thread and then a bunch of other messages handled on a different thread but from the programming point of view, you really don't care because the actor model guarantees that you're safe to modify your internal state. So it's also simplicity, I would say. Mm-hmm. So Akka, for those who still might be a little confused, is this uh, library for managing concurrency in the JVM. It's written Scala. You can use it in a JVM language like Java or in Scala. Um, so in Scala, there was actually an implementation of the actor pattern yes, by yeah. early 2006. But it Correct. actually it didn't have ideal support for concurrency. So what was wrong with Scala's early actor implementation? What, what, did, what did Akka get right in its... Uh, different implementation of the actor pattern? That's that's a great question, and that's a great story as well. So uh, the original implementation of Scala actors was done mostly by Philip Haller, and, um, well, he's a researcher, right? So he was very interested in the actor model, and he implemented the model very much like it is implemented in Erlang and very much based on the papers. And there is a very big difference in how Erlang, um, the VM, uh, so the Beam VM, can do stuff with processes and what the JVM can do with processes. So in Erlang, um, basically each actor is its own process and that allows them to basically kind of don't care about uh, the kind of blocking inside actors or they can just await a message without hurting anyone else. And uh, if they don't receive... So so if you're an actor and you don't want to receive a message because you're not able to handle it right now, 
the original papers and the Erlang implementation, what they would do is it just puts it in a queue on the side and it assumes that, well, eventually you will be handling that message. So you will just pop the, pop the stack and handle these set aside messages. So now let's fast forward to the Scala implementation. It implemented pretty much that and turns out it's really not a good fit for the JVM. Um, there's a few problems with it. So one problem is, so if I can't receive a message right now, because maybe I'm initializing, I'm doing something else, so it's being put on the side in this external queue, we call it the stash. Um, and if you never pop it, pop this stash, well, you never ever take these messages out of the stash. So it turns out that's basically a memory leak. It's like a um, well, built-in by design memory leak, if you will. Um, but in the Erlang VM, the thing that would happen is, well, only this one single actor crashes. But what happens in the JVM, if you would do such a thing, well, the entire JVM crashes, right? Because you have one single JVM process. If you run out of memory, everybody is dead. So that's one problem about it. And the other problem was, um, it was more a academic endeavor. So it wasn't really fast and it wasn't really geared that much for concurrency or distribution. So the Scala actors never handled distribution. So you couldn't send messages over the wire to a different machine. And that's pretty much what Akka uh, did right, I think. The, the observation that message passing, very much like in the Erlang way, goes very well both for concurrency and distributed programming. So the story about how the Scala actors got eventually deprecated was that basically the community realized, well, they're not that good and we shouldn't be really using them because people would run into these out-of-memory issues and stuff like that. And by that time, Akka was already popular. So the decision was made to deprecate the Scala actors, eventually eject them from the standard library, put them on the side. And Akka didn't directly replace it. So Akka is not part of the standard library. However, it is very much the go-to library if you want to do concurrency in Scala. Hmm. So I worked at a place uh, two or three years ago where their architecture was kind of mostly Java, but had some message passing using Erlang, I think for uh, mostly for the, the reasons that you're describing that are desirable, the, the actor model. Uh, they also did have some Scala in production, um, but it sounded like, you know, they're they were sticking with Erlang. What, in general, what are companies trying to accomplish when they use Erlang versus using something like Scala? Like, are, are, what are the the strengths and weaknesses? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the actor based model in Akka is based off of these, it or it draws inspiration from yeah. Erlang. Yeah. So, you know, what in what conditions are people still using Erlang as the message passing layer between their Java services as opposed to just using Akka? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. And I, I also attend some conferences where you also get some Erlang people and then we get to talk. And it's very interesting how um, 
because like I said, the one sentence pitch is that Akka is like Erlang or, <laughs> or, or, or OTP at least. So it's the standard library around the message passing in that, in that sense. But when you start really looking into it, you notice that the ecosystem, uh, for example, Scala is of course uh, very influenced by the Java ecosystem. So Akka is again influenced by the Scala ecosystem, which is influenced by the Java ecosystem. And Erlang is very much its own world. So um, the biggest win, and on the other hand, also a big uh, pain point for maintaining Akka is all of the interrupt capabilities with all the existing Java libraries out there. And this is really, really a big thing because Java libraries are really out there for basically anything you just need. And on the other hand, the Erlang ecosystem, either you're already part of the Erlang ecosystem or you're likely not really going to go there. That's my personal and, well, that's what we see with customers. Um, you rarely see a Erlang shop suddenly go and become a Java shop and vice versa. Um, so, and we also, I mean, it's a difficult question in terms of... It sounds why like a matter you... of... It sounds like a matter of taste rather than some practical uh, reasoning. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly do um, anything in one or the other language and model, but it is very much a taste thing, but maybe a random observation that I found. It's an ecosystem observation. So in the Scala and um, well, Java ecosystem, that's a statically typed languages, right? And Erlang, on the other hand, uh, is, well, not really typed. So... Again, it's a taste thing, but it's also impacting how people build these systems. So I was a bit surprised how people test Erlang-based systems. It's not that kind of many-tier, okay, here's my unit test, here's my integration test, here's my um, full-blown integration test of the entire system. Um, so I think the entire feel of the system is very different. And again, this loops back to this preference thing. Right. So I want to pivot the conversation a little bit and talk about reactive programming. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what reactive programming is and why that's relevant to this conversation. Yeah, so reactive programming, we're, I guess, in the middle of the hype around that work. <laughs> or maybe, yeah, I guess we're at the peak of the hype. That's, that's my personal kind of observation on it. But what is it really? Um, um, the answer is a bit tricky. So back in 2013, I think early 2013, uh, pretty much we as Lightband, uh, so Jonas and some other guys from the industry, so um, Martin Thompson was invited there as well, uh, offered the Reactive Manifesto. And already then, so why, why, why did even the Reactive Manifesto came to be? Because already then in 2013, there was a lot of confusion what reactive actually is. So everybody was uh, using the word, but everybody was using it slightly differently. So, you know, people would call, for example, things like RxJava. This is the definite reactive programming thing, right? On the other hand, people coming from a more distributed uh, systems background would say, yeah, but we react to failure, etc., etc." So there was a problem around the word being very, very overloaded. So that was already in 2013. And I think we're still having this problem of the word being very overloaded. 
mostly because it's become very popular and also uh, there's a bunch of projects which have the word reactive in the name uh, like reactive extensions or RxJava or yeah, reactive Kafka, which we work on, or all kinds of reactive anything. And React.js, which has nothing to do with reactive programming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, the actual origin of... Uh, let's pivot a little bit, because that's also adding to the confusion. So there's reactive <laughs> programming, but there's also functional reactive programming. And people think that's the same thing. Well, actually, it's not. And functional reactive programming is very much um, originated in the well back in the days in the Haskell community. But more recently, when it became popular, as it is right now, it basically was revived by the Elm uh, programming language, which is a nice uh, front-end language to kind of react on events, react on mouse clicks and stuff like that. And that wasn't really a new concept. This this idea has been around for years, but it kind of took it to the mainstream. So now we have libraries like RxJava, AkaStreams, um, and, and yeah, maybe Reactor as well, which follow the functional reactive programming paradigm. But that's a piece of the pie because that only handles the local abstractions, the, the threading things, but it doesn't handle reacting to failure, which really is when... When we think about reactive, that's really part of it because you want to have a system that is able to react to increased load then it can scale down again. So it's not just being an overpowered iterator, which FRP is. And, and I say that even being an author of one of such libraries, but really FRP is a small piece of the puzzle. Okay, so... Uh just to give people a better idea for what is actually going on here, um, you know, we could talk about data streams and reacting to those events. Maybe you could give an example of, you know, the, the, a, a prototypical example of somebody who is doing reactive programming. Yeah, so, hmm, prototypical example. Well, I mean, quite honestly, Netflix would be the biggest example, I think. And they do it on all the levels, um, which I mean when I say reactive. So they do the scaling according to load. That's, that's in my perspective, a part of reactive. And they also do the FRP threading model things, right? And it all then kind of pieces together. But, um, yeah... It's, it's this thing about you can't just do one layer in your stack reactive and call it a day because, yes, then you get some benefits and that's where you start out with. But um, eventually you notice that if a part of your stack is still very, very blocking, very monolithic, then you need to work around it and this will um, quickly become the bottleneck. So... The prototypical example, so the Netflix example, they still struggle with um, a part of the system being um, in the old ways, let's put it this way. And that's part of the challenge with Reactive, to see how we can evolve existing systems into actual Reactive ones, step by step. So, I think of uh, Reactive programming, you can tell me if I'm wrong, as you kind of going you're going from the paradigm of thinking about programming over arrays 
to going to programming over streams. So rather than having these fixed length series of data that you're operating over, you basically expect there to be a stream that has an unbounded series of events. You kind of mm-hmm. may not know when you're going to get a new event. All you are guaranteed is that the events are going to keep coming. Would you say that's accurate? I would say that's accurate for FRP. So okay. that's exactly the functional reactive programming part of the pie. And I think it's it's a big part, but it's not the complete part. So when you look at ACA, um, that part is exactly what ACA Streams is about. So this has been uh, the last two years or so of our development. And we also uh, kickstarted the Reactive Streams initiative um, around in 2013 as well. And let's talk about uh, reactive streams in a bit, maybe. But ACA streams is exactly that. So you have an infinite, possibly infinite stream of data, and you want to apply some operations on it. But then you suddenly realize, and this is where um, we were at some point in time, that, okay, we have a stream of data, we handle it. But then you have this situation of, okay, but the downstream consumers of this data can't really keep up with the stream of data. And when they get overwhelmed, the stream slows down, or even worse, it goes out of memory and crashes. So this exact situation is what led us in 2013 uh, to kickstart the Reactive Streams Initiative, which was and is um, basically a standard. So it's not something you implement directly. But it's a common kind of way of handling these uh, streaming, um, well, communication patterns, I say. But basically, all these libraries, so RxJava, Reactor, Akka Streams, they weren't in. They were at this point that okay, we have a stream of data and it's um, kind of flowing. But when you want to handle this overflow scenarios. And this is where really the big challenge was. And what we addressed with Reactive Streams, which uh, has been released maybe a year ago as 1.0, and is on its its way to the JDK, actually, as part of the uh, Java improvement process 266, which is the more concurrency updates. Uh, um, So it's a protocol on a library level that basically defines how to handle this overload scenarios in a back pressured and safe asynchronous way. So Okay, let's 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 take a step back. Before we get into reactive streams, let's talk about back pressure. Can you define that term? Okay, so back pressure, um, maybe a new word for an old concept. It basically is flow control, right? So flow control, a concept not really new to the software industry, but we have kind of forgotten about it in the recent years. Um, So we did have these stream processing libraries. Like you said, you think about your app as this infinite stream of data, but somehow we forgot that, well, different parts of such a stream can have different processing rates and then buffer bu- buffers get filled up and eventually you get a very crazily GCing system. So back pressure is a way to control the rate of sending messages between these stages in such a stream in such a way that no one, no stage is really overwhelmed. And by overwhelmed, I mean has to, for example, infinitely buffer and 
you can't really infinitely buffer in a normal computer because you have limited memory. So we basically avoid uh, out-of-memory issues. And yeah, let's let's talk about reactive streams in a bit, maybe. Well, so, okay, so, yeah, and just to detail back pressure a little bit more. So if you have, let's say, a producer and a consumer model, so you have a producer yeah. that's making events and a consumer that is consuming those events, uh, maybe they're communicating over a socket. Um, yeah. So back pressure is needed when the consumer of a data stream cannot keep up with the producer. The producer is making too many events to be consumed, the consumer cannot consume them at the rate that the producer is making them. Um, the consumer typically has a buffer to deal with these events being sent yeah. by the producer. What sorts of situations in an application are associated with back pressure, and what what has to happen in the relationship between the producer and the consumer to deal with that situation? Mm-hmm. So maybe first, when these situations actually happen. Yeah. And it's it's a very interesting uh, shift in thinking when you... So, for example, we very often have uh, customers or users on the mailing list that went from normal blocking applications. For example, they have some servlet in which they did everything blockingly. And now they want to scale out a bit more. So they come to Akka. And now everything is asynchronous because that's our default. And well, at the first moment, there is asynchronous communication. We get into the situation that there is a producer and there is a consumer, even if you don't think about it explicitly this way, right? Because even if, in the case of actors, it's very explicit. There is a a producer that is putting messages into a mailbox and there is a consumer, which is the actor that is processing the messages in the mailbox. So there it's very explicit, which is also an upside of Akka because you can reason about it very easily. But even without Akka, just with threads, it's very much the same situation because, for example, if I'm scheduling asynchronous tasks on a thread pool, well, what happens if I'm crazily scheduling a lot of tasks on this thread pool and the thread pool can't keep up processing them? The same situation happens even if without thinking about messaging, just normal task submission. So the first moment you get into any kind of asynchronous programming, there should be some thought put into back pressure. Mm. So in this situation where the consumer has this buffer that's filling up with events being sent by the producer what typically happens when that buffer fills up with messages and the consumer can't can't take any more messages? Yeah, so um, if we were to answer generically, then it depends. But let's start from the JVM answer. Well, you're basically out of memory and your system crashes <laughs> because we have one shared heap for all the processes. Uh, that's, um, for example, if we're in the, if the producer and consumer are in the same JVM and we just talk about um, asynchronous messages between them, so then the entire app crashes. But the same situation could happen with um, a distributed application that someone is sending messages or maybe consuming messages from a queue like Kafka, but consuming it and buffering it in memory, right? And then you try to process, but you can't really keep up. And then this process crashes, right? But eventually it ends up with processes crashing. Um, what we have, for example, in Akka streams is 
So AkaStreams has built-in back pressure and it's enabled by default, which is a difference from uh, RxJava. In RxJava, you have to think about back pressure and then, well, add it in a certain way. In AkaStreams, we thought that the moment you realize you need back pressure, it's kind of too late because things are crashing on production. So it shouldn't be an afterthought. So we just add in, add it in there by default. And for example, whenever we have a buffer in Akka streams, it has a specific behavior for the situation when it overflows. Uh, so for one thing, it shouldn't overflow because we have uh, this back pressure mechanism, but you could, can put a explicit buffer there and then you can say what it should do when it overflows. And the decisions are uh, basically drop all the elements that you had in the buffer. So when you have a clean state, well, you missed some data, but at least you can survive now. Or maybe drop the oldest element that's still in the queue, or maybe drop the newest element. And turns out that this is actually sometimes even a business decision, what we want to drop from the buffer. So imagine you're subscribing to a stock ticker or something like that. And you have a buffer of uh, um, stock value from the last, I don't know, few minutes. And you keep getting new updates for the stock value of a, a certain stock. So if that buffer overflows, I simply can drop the oldest value of that stock because it's not really helping me right now. I need the newest value of that stock, right? So by making explicit decisions about that, we're able to model very interesting things that actually do loop a little bit back into the business decisions. Hmm. So I think we can get here into the discussion of reactive streams. What is a reactive stream? Okay, so reactive streams, like I keep uh, kept trying to get into the topic too early a bit. So <laughs> it is a surprising answer to some people because we uh, it's a topic that's um, coming up online and there's presentations about them. And then sometimes people think, oh, so I should be... Um, using reactive streams, which is both true and false at the same time. What I mean by that is, and when we started with the reactive streams initiative, we called it a, not API, but SPI. So we called it a, well, basically API for implementations thereof to communicate between each other. So for example, RxJava would implement it internally. We would implement it internally. And this way, we would be able to get an Rx stream and just directly connect it to an Akka stream. And the back pressure, which is defined, defined in the reactive stream standard, would just work, even though it's completely different implementations. So there was, it was an explicit goal to be an interop protocol that's meant for libraries to implement. And then users would indirectly benefit from that. So... What I mean by saying you should and shouldn't be using reactive streams at the same time is no one... So let's say I'm at a company, I'm writing a project. I really shouldn't be implementing reactive streams directly because, well, it's it's a really, really low-level uh, concurrency protocol, I would even say, that's really hard to get right. So my part in that initiative was writing all the... Uh, tests and TCK that would do all the crazy behaviors that we try to guard against and really those well maybe 
not hundreds, but at least a hundred of crazy edge cases you need to watch out for when implementing reactive streams. So you don't want to implement reactive streams as a you know user of stuff because you want to get stuff done, and then you would spend you know months infl- implementing reactive streams. Instead, what you want to do is know okay, this library it implements reactive streams, so I have these and these guarantees. The guarantees being the interrupt guarantee with other libraries. And the back pressure guarantee, which we can talk about in a bit uh, in detail if you want to. But basically, it guarantees that we will not overflow downstreams. So you knowing that the library implements reactive streams, that's all you need to know. I get those guarantees. I use that library. I'm good. But one shouldn't really be thinking about reactive streams as a library for user consumption. Okay, so if I am uh, writing an application where I need this interoperability, how does that impact how what I'm doing? Is that like I can have one aspect of my program written in Java and the other aspect in JavaScript and the reactive streams are the mechanism by which information is being uh, communicated between Java and JavaScript? Uh, not quite. So reactive streams... Um... Actually, we we have a reactive streams GitHub organization under which there is the reactive streams JVM. And this is what currently people refer to as reactive streams. So it's a set of uh, Java interfaces and people have ported it to, um, um, for example, Scala.js. So yes, it runs in, in JavaScript, but there is no bridge between, for example, the browser land into the JVM server side. However, this is something that we started a a new endeavor on. So together with uh, Ben Christensen of Rx fame, uh, who has been participating with us in reactive streams, the next step we want to take this thing is basically what you um, kind of briefly mentioned here is taking this interrupt communication over the wire. Because currently it's strictly a um, asynchronous uh, boundary protocol, so between threads. But we want to take the same semantics and take them onto the wire. That project is called Reactive Socket. And it's mostly being driven by Ben Christensen, who is at Facebook right now. So that's the second step. But how does this interrupt story actually impact you if you have you know, daily job and you want to get stuff done? Uh, I think it's a something that people don't notice, but maybe will notice soon enough. So, for example, imagine you have a database driver and the database guys figured, yeah, so maybe we should really provide an asynchronous driver because it would make sense. And what they would then provide is, well, as this database vendor, I don't want to lock people in to a specific streaming framework. I want them so the users of my database to be able to consume uh, my database in a streaming fashion uh, with whatever library they like. So this driver would expose reactive streams. And then as a user of it, you would say, well, I'm using Akka streams and it just works. Or I'm using something else and it just works. Or again, if someone provided a nice um, streaming uh, XML parsing library, that's really streaming in asynchronous or the same thing for JSON. They would expose the reactive streams interfaces and then you're not locked into whatever library that author liked. 
you can consume it with whatever you like. So it really is a, well, the inverse of vendor lock-in. We really want to be uh, to be the streaming kind of concept, a thing that everybody participates. And once someone has implemented a useful library, the entire ecosystem benefits. So it's more like it, interoperability here means if whether you are in JavaScript or the JVM, you have a similar experience when you are programming streaming applications. Is that accurate? Um, it's it's not quite about the different languages still. So we're still okay. in the same JVM. So let's 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 use the Java case. So um, let's say there's a reactive Mongo driver, right? And Mongo suddenly has a streaming interface, and they provided a reactive streams um, iterator, basically. So you can get a stream of uh, documents from that Mongo thing, and. So reactive streams don't provide any kind of API that is actually nice to use. So it doesn't provide map, it doesn't provide filter, it doesn't provide any of the nice operators. Um, it's just the minimal APIs that would allow you to make this back pressure work across libraries. So you need to use something to consume that stream because you won't be, you know, doing the low level thing all the time you want to do a map and a filter on these collect on these streams so you basically just take anaka streams connect it to this database thing and it just works and you get all these operators from the aka streams library okay all right so so we're talking here explicitly about aka reactive streams um so is I guess what I was confused about is I was thinking that reactive streams was something that you implemented it in Akka and it's also offered in RxJS and that's actually relevant here, but but you're talking purely about the Akka ecosystem. Uh, no, 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 no. So reactive streams is a uh, zero dependencies for interfaces uh, library. And that has zero to do with, well, yes, we, we did mostly drive the initiative, but the Rx guys and the reactor guys and the, a bunch of other projects participated in that. And basically everyone agreed what we need as this minimal API that we can communicate between Rx Java and, R and Akka Streams and Redpack and Rx Netty and all these different libraries. And they internally communicate over this library. So instead of everybody having a vendor lock-in, so if you use Rx, but someone in Akka ecosystem made a nice library, you can't use it because, yeah, it's different streams. You don't care which streams someone implemented the library with because, hey, it's a reactive streams compatible thing. I can just use it. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the the way that backpressure is handled in reactive streams. So there is a dynamic push-pull style of backpressure. Can you define what pull-based backpressure and push-based backpressure is and what the dynamic push-pull style for reactive streams is? Yeah, so the dynamic push-pull style, um, maybe let's first talk about pull and why it's not enough. Um, so in a pull-based back pressure mechanism, it's very simple to implement. It's super simple to implement. So the downstream, each time uh, 
I process the message and I know, okay, since I process the message, I'm able to consume another message. So I pull from uh, the upstream, hey, now you can send me a message. The problem with that is that is a lot of overhead, right? Because for each message, you need to pull pull the next one and pull the next one. So this is why pull, it would solve the overflow, overflow problem because it is always safe because I, I, as the downstream, decide when I am ready to consume a next element. So we have solved the back pressure problem, but it's a lot of overhead. Uh, the purely push-based uh, protocols are basically that the upstream decides, okay, I have data, I will push the data downstream. And I, as the downstream subscriber, may or may not have space in my buffer, and then I need to do something with a buffer that is overflowing, right? So the strategies I talked about with dropping the buffer, dropping the oldest element, etc., uh, that's a flavor of, um, of basically accepting the push, and then I deal with it somehow. So what we do in the um, reactive or dynamic push-pull mechanism is it's like a pull-based protocol, but instead of pulling every message, we basically give a permit to the upstream that, let's say my buffer space was um, 10 elements. In general, I can have 10 elements in my uh, buffer, and currently I have four elements in my buffer. So I can, can turn to my upstream, hey, I'm ready to consume at most six elements. And this is done via a asynchronous message. And so I send this, I demand six elements. The upstream then knows it can send at most six elements because we have ready buffer space for it. So it starts sending those elements asynchronously. So let's say it has sent three already. They're flying into the buffer, they're in the buffer, but in the meantime, I, as the downstream, have processed the other four messages that I had previously in my buffer. And then I decide, well, um, I previously signaled that I'm ready to consume six elements. I currently processed all, the, all of the four elements that I had in my buffer. So I didn't tell the upstream about these four spaces in the buffer that, I cur that are currently free. They are available for... Uh, buffering. So right now I can send to the upstream asynchronously again that, hey, now I demand four elements. So in the upstream, it can basically sum up the total number of permits, so the total number of elements it is allowed to send downstream. And if, for example, if it's spinning in a loop, it can keep spinning in this loop and producing the elements as fast as it can to push them downstream and it will never overflow the buffer because it will always stop whenever it has reached the maximum uh, number of elements it was allowed to send. So the key feature is that all of the communication, so the sending of a demand and sending of elements, is all asynchronous. So in the happy case, we never have to stop, but it's also safe because the upstream can never send more than it was allowed to. Got it. What do I need to know about the lower level network protocols like TCP or UDP or HTTP or WebSockets in order to understand reactive streams more thoroughly? So that's a good question. And it's also 
Uh, one of the confusion points about reactive streams. So it's a great question to ask here. So TCP, for example, TCP has back pressure built in. It has flow control. It has the so-called uh, TCP uh, congestion window. So it basically says which bytes it has received. So the sending side of TCP doesn't have to resend those, right? So if we stop advertising to the uh, sending side of TCP that we have received these messages, or you can send this and this much data to me, then the upstream is basically being back pressured over TCP, right? So TCP always had that feature. However, what, well, in recent years, we have been building in, in well, all kinds of web servers was we have this back pressure on the wire, so between the client and the server, but we didn't propagate it all the way through into the application. So for example, imagine this case that I'm, uh, I'm Twitter and I'm streaming tweets to a mobile phone, right? And this mobile phone suddenly goes into a tunnel. So it stops receiving the tweets. However, the server keeps generating the tweets, right? It keeps crunching them, generating the live data for us, but it really doesn't have to. It doesn't even have to parse or prepare the tweets because the downstream, so the mobile client, is in a tunnel and won't be receiving the tweets anyway. So what reactive streams allow us to do is to take these uh, TCP mechanisms and take them and expose them all the way up to the application so the TCP streaming server can realize, oh, the, the client is in a tunnel, so I won't be even generating the tweets for him because he won't be receiving them anyway. And when the client comes back, the TCP back pressure again picks up and starts consuming the tweets. Then the server is being woken up and starts generating tweets again. And this is pretty much transparent just by the fact of using any reactive streams compliant library. You don't even have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I want to begin to zoom out and uh, as we draw to a close in this conversation, what should people be taking away from this discussion? Is there something about the way that we write our applications that is changing that makes reactive programming more appealing as a paradigm for writing our applications? Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest takeaway right now is that we have a, I would even say striving a nice ecosystem because we have these standards and everybody is cooperating with each other. So it's not like in, in previous endeavors where um, some library would do a thing and they would wall everything, everyone off and you can't use this thing if you're not uh, part of that ecosystem. Now we're in this wonderful point in time where all of the ecosystems start to converge because this idea of streaming data is so ubiquitous that basically everybody wanted to participate. And instead of fighting each other, all the libraries kind of joint efforts. And I think that's a really good time to, well, pick up on it because, well, that's a huge, huge ecosystem and it's still growing. So one aspect of... Well, one thing I read about is that this is growing movement called no ETL that is trying to move us more towards 
stream processing and less batch processing, and there's some association here between uh, reactive streams. How do reactive streams fit into this paradigm shift? Hmm. So... Again, uh, so like we talked in the beginning that reactive is a very overloaded term. Sadly, streams is a overloaded term as well. So, for example, people would say, um, well, well, for one thing, that's for, that's for Java streams, which aren't streams at all. They're just parallel collections. So that's one offender. Then we have Spark streaming, which almost is proper streaming, but it actually is just very small batches. And then we have uh, new libraries like Flink that are actually um, really streaming data processing and streaming data analytics. And then we have reactive streams, which are, like I said, a purely local abstraction. You can think of them like a overpowered iterator, really, an asynchronous, backpressured, safe iterator. So in a way, it is very hard to compare when someone asks, could you compare reactive streams with Spark streaming? Because yes, the world is the same, but the goals are completely different. So this is something that we, we, we have a new challenge in defining terminology right now, I think. Mm. So how are the ideas around reactive streams changing the JVM ecosystem? Yeah, that's that's a great thing. So, like I said, um, it is a standard that multiple organizations participated in, including us uh, and the Pivotal guys and the Red Hat guys, etc., etc. So, and it wasn't really done through the usual J- JCP process uh, that would have taken, you know, committees voting on APIs and ballots and and stuff like that. But it was really a need of the entire Java community to come up with this common API that all of us felt we needed. And then it turned out that it's so useful that it's worth to include in the JDK. So now it's not only a random library that everybody is implementing the APIs, but it actually will be included in JDK 9. It will be the um, Java Util Concurrency Flow, uh, and that's basically a copy-paste of the reactive streams interfaces. So it also shows that with enough cooperation and need to do something important, we're able to move the Java ecosystem forward in ways that we previously thought is impossible. So there are all these companies that are using reactive streams and contributing to the projects. Netflix, TypeSafe, Red Hat, Pivotal. Could you just close off by maybe talking about why reactive streams are relevant to these different companies, how they are using streams in production? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I'll start with two sentences about us and then the other guys because I have uh, most context about us. So the reason we came up with why we need this was basically... So TypeSafe is also the company behind, well, currently Lightband is the company behind the Play framework. And in Play, uh, there was a way to do yeah, streaming APIs, and that was very Haskell inspired. So then it, it wasn't a very good fit. Then in Akka, we also had some back pressure protocols, but they were a bit hard for users. 
And then we talked uh, with Ben Christensen and we kind of converged that, hey, it seems that we all need the same thing, which is slowing down the rate of producing if the downstreams can't keep up. So, for example, in, in the case of Akka, it would be that, well, it's great that Akka is so fast and we do so many millions per sec- um, millions of messages per second, but by the end of the day, we are hitting this legacy system over there with a few million messages per second, and we basically keep killing uh, our own systems in some company. So we really needed a way to do um, as fast as we can, but not faster. And then it turned out that many other companies, and uh, like I said, our ex guys, the Netflix case was exactly that. They were having trouble with, let's not kill our own servers, right? And turns out everybody was tackling the same problem, which which is why the uh, movement came to be and everybody participated. All right, Conrad. Well, thanks for coming on the show. This has been an illuminating conversation about reactive streams and Akka, and um, I'm really glad to have had you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.